Hey, it's Jay. Three Clips and all of MarketingShowrunners.com is sponsored by Casted. Casted is building the world's first platform specifically for marketers who make podcasts. So you can put your show at the center of your marketing strategy and get more value from the content you create, not only to serve your sales team and other marketers, but to better serve your audience. So check out casted.us and learn how to better manage and measure your show. Casted.us. How does your show's premise affect your show? I think there's a couple ways it affects your listener, which are obvious and also very clearly beneficial to you. But what about your show? Let's start with the listener part of it. When you have a clear premise, when you can articulate not only what you talk about, but how you talk about it, you get to tell your audience, this is definitely a show for you. So the audience can self-select into the show because they can see very clearly that it is for them. And then they can stick and stay with more confidence and excitement because they can clearly see or at least anticipate how this show might unfold. There's so much to explore in one episode and across episodes. So a great show premise helps listeners not only self-select your show, but stick with it. That's pretty magical. But what about the effects that that premise has when you make smaller choices to build your program inside of an episode? When you have a clear premise, how does it affect things like your performance on the microphone or your episode format? Well, today we're going to profile a show that is brilliant at taking a premise and making sure it's very clear and different and then imbuing all of their content with elements of that premise. Everything they do seems to be easier and more creative and more highly resonant with us, the listener, because they're so clear on their premise and how it affects their episodes. Best of all, this show has very little budget to do it, and they do it well, even so. I want to know how you do the things do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. Welcome to another episode of Three Clips, where we dissect great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akunzo. I'm the founder of the media and education company, MarketingShowrunners.com. Also, before we get started today, this is the first time I'm using our new theme music, courtesy of the folk band out of New York City, Cardboard Rocket Ship. Their cellist, Tally Gabriel, is actually a staff writer for MSR, and she's appeared on this show and will appear again. So thank you to Tally and her bandmates the band Cardboard Rocket Ship for our awesome new theme music. They just dropped their first album in 2020. Please support them on Spotify. Search for Cardboard Rocket Ship if you like great folk music. All right, so today we're going to take a hard look at the show You're Wrong About. That's the name of the show, You're Wrong About. It's a very successful, fully independent podcast. But before we start dissecting it, let's just get some facts of the show. Let's look at three things, the three component parts of any great show, the talent, the premise, and the episode format. Let's start with the talent. You're Wrong About is hosted by two writers and journalists, Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. Mike works for HuffPost, and Sarah writes for The Believer, BuzzFeed, and The New Republic. They both write about pop culture, social issues, and history with an emphasis on how big topics in all of those domains have been misunderstood or misconstrued. For example, here's a headline from Sarah. The Magic Kingdom, the dark side of the Disney dream. And here's one from Mike. Everything you know about obesity is wrong. So these two are the perfect hosts for a show called 
you're wrong about. And their personalities play off each other really, really well in the show. One will put forth an idea and back it up with reporting, and the other will interpret it with their own usually cynical, clever, or funny spin. Their rapport and jokiness really make this show. So that's insight into the talent. What about the second part of a great show, the premise? So this is a show about cultural events and people from the past, where the hosts remember what we collectively thought of that topic, and then use research and the benefit of time passing and hindsight to examine whether our memories of the thing or our understanding in the moment were correct. Now that time has passed, were we correct in our assumptions back then? When it was newsworthy, were we correct about what we understood? Or, like the title implies, were we wrong about this big thing? At the end of the day, this is a show about showcasing how the media, the pundits, our collective biases, our lens on a newsworthy topic often skews our understanding of that topic. Now, they could have had a premise that was really straightforward. Facts we forgot about. Something like that. Instead, this show takes a harder angle with their premise. You're wrong about. You here is you, the listener, and the hosts as well, because at least one of the hosts assumes the stance of the listener every single episode. So in addition to that harder angle, that firm conceit of a premise, the show tries to make a larger, more positive change in the culture. And that's what a great premise is for. It's like saying, we want to change X. We want to know more deeply about Y. We'd like to go forward and find Z. And our show is the vehicle for doing that. So great premises don't just describe what you explore, they describe how you explore it. And in doing so, it gives listeners a reason why they should care. And they care because they see what would be different if they join that listening journey. So with You're Wrong About, what will be different? You will be able to look at anything, not just things from history, but things happening every day in your life with a better lens. You'll question assumptions and actually look for the truth. So even though this show talks about you're wrong about a historical thing, it really helps listeners understand the truth about anything. The topics range from former tabloid favorites like Jessica Simpson or Anna Nicole Smith to news stories like the explosion of the Challenger spacecraft or the shooting at Columbine. And the show does not steer away from sensitive topics either, or maybe I should say heavy topics. They talk about the Taliban or the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade case as just two examples. So that's a little bit on the premise. We've talked about the talent. We've talked about the premise. Let's understand the format, that third leg of the stool, the third pillar of any great show, the format. Every episode is either Mike or Sarah's turn to present the topic, and then the other person will opine or give their perspective on what they think they know about it or what the general understanding seems to be out in the world. So they take turns playing those two different roles, the role of the presenter and the role of the general populace. Then they go back and forth to come to some kind of conclusion about how close the common perception or assumptions about something were to the truth. And usually it's a combination of, you know, some things were actually worse about that news story than we realized, and some things were actually better than the media narrative. Let's see, what else do I want to say about this show? It's not an enormous show, but it is a favorite of many writers and journalists for exactly what I just described, this great talent, premise, format combination. It's been around for just over two years, and in that time, already amassed 3,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Now, reviews are not anything, but if you really think about it, to get 3,000 people to rate your show, you must be reaching a pretty sizable audience, so long as you didn't, you know, purchase reviews and game the systems. We'll set that aside for these two, because I don't think Mike and Sarah do that. 
The point is, there's nothing fancy about this show. They don't have a ton of crazy post-production, and they do a little bit of segmentation in their episode that recurs each episode. So just by having a great premise ironed out and allowing it to change how they deconstruct something throughout their episode, in other words, using the premise to come up with a format to prove the premise or explore it, that is their production value. Production value does not mean lots of heavy edits. The right premise can help listeners self-select into the show and stick with you in part because you've strategically planned it out. You've put in the thought to say something that matters and then inside the episode, get them to the end. So that's what this show is. But what does this show feel like? Well, that brings us to our next segment, the studio pitch. Whenever we create a show, it's imperative on us as the showrunners to make sure people just get it. We also have to deliver on a feel, a tone, an immersive experience people like. So in the classic Hollywood executive suite, you would see creators of shows pitching this show cross style. That's when you blend lots of inspirational sources to say it's kind of like this meets that meets that. So what's the show cross or the studio pitch for You're Wrong About? I think it's like Mythbusters meets I Love the 90s meets Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Now, let me explain this, because by making clear what they borrow, maybe you can borrow some of those elements, too, back for your show. Okay, so like Mythbusters, the hosts will test some different ideas for factual accuracy. That's such a great little tweak or a little wrinkle on the status quo. Instead of just exploring something at face value, the whole point is they'll test some ideas for factual accuracy. We could do that in any domain. That's what Mythbusters does. Obviously, you're wrong about doesn't blow stuff up quite as often, but they still do the same kind of myth-bustery approach to facts. It's also like I Love the 90s in that it brings us back to a simpler, less internet-heavy and social media-crazed time, back when crises or at least newsworthy events really only appeared to you through TV or the newspaper. That's it. Imagine that. And on this podcast, they also use some dark irony to showcase some humor and allow you to feel there's entertainment value to their show, even while they explore something serious, and that's very much like John Oliver and his weekly show on HBO. But luckily, these hosts don't go quite so far into the snark. All right, so that's how I'd pitch this show. That's what this show feels like. It's Mythbusters meets I Love the 90s meets Last Week Tonight. So now that we know what the show is and what it feels like, let's hear some clips and try to make sense of what makes this show so great. I believe that creativity is just the sum total of lots of little choices, and when we understand creativity in the minutiae, it allows us to see that we can create somebody's favorite show, too. Creativity is about resourcefulness, not resources. It's about what's between your ears, not what's in your wallet. It's the combination of repetition and reinvention over time. So, let's play three different clips, and I just want to tee up these clips before we dive into them with a little bit of context here. Unlike many podcasts that try to, A, connect with current trendy topics, and B, sing the praises of the people or companies or things they profile, You're Wrong About has a premise that turns both of those things upside down. The topics are from history, so you might scan their episode list and be like, who cares? This is old news. So is there any reason to pick this stuff up off the shelf and wipe the dust off? Why frame it as... You're wrong about in the first place anyway. Well, there's the intrigue of why you want to revisit these topics, not just to learn about them, 
that's interesting at face value too. You were wrong about this major thing you lived through 10 years ago. That's interesting. But even more compelling is you can now go about your day being a sleuth for the truth. I should write to Mike and Sarah. I don't know if they use that tagline. You're wrong about hashtag sleuth for the truth. Maybe if they really fully want to embrace the John Oliver element of my studio pitch, they could always pause halfway through a little rant on their show and go hashtag sleuth for the truth. Anyways, the show turns the conventional premise up on its head. It, it's contradictory. It poses a question. What were we wrong about? Instead of simply stating something like, this topic is just so darn interesting, let's try to fully understand it from all angles. And by having a premise that turns the convention on its head, the real goal of the show comes through more forcefully. The listener is more likely to leave the episodes and start thinking critically about their world day to day. So when they see an article headline, a social media post, or sure, any podcast episode from any podcaster, they can more critically think about what's really happening and find the truth. They can think, well, if I was wrong about that big event 10 years ago, what else am I wrong about? This show creates more critical thinkers and think-for-yourselfers in the era of misinformation, sensationalism, and tribal stances on everything. You're Wrong About wants to make you think correctly about pretty much everything. All right, so let's go to our first clip to see how that premise comes through in the episode content. This first clip is from an episode about Y2K, the Y2K bug, that moment where the calendar flipped from 1999 to 2000, Y2K, and all the panic and scariness that ensued in the media leading up to that moment in technology, in the private sector, the public sector, you name it, everyone was crazed back then about what would happen when all of these systems we rely on in society suddenly read zero, zero. In this clip, Mike and Sarah remember that people generally thought of Y2K as really scary. They panicked. But then afterwards, we saw it as sort of a non-event once we got through it. That's why they wanted to talk about this specific topic, because there's so many things that we were wrong about, both leading up to Y2K, but also, very interestingly, afterwards. But in this clip that I'm about to play for you, there's kind of a Russian doll situation. So let me just give you some context there. I am currently teeing up a clip that I'm about to play, in which Mike, the host, then tees up his own clip for his listeners. So you're going to hear them play a little bit of music as they go into and then out of their clip. So I'm going to start you on the moment where Mike says to Sarah, hey, I want to play this old clip of ours, because apparently they had started drafting this episode's two years prior to actually publishing it. And he wanted to hilariously go back and look at their bad audio quality and play that content. So it's a little meta. There's a reason I'm going to play this. There's a reason it's meta. If you're confused, perfect. What podcast host doesn't want his listeners confused, right? Right. All right, let's go to the clip. But so now is the point in the show where ordinarily I would ask you what you know about Y2K so I can myth bust you. But uh-huh. we have tape. We have live <gasps> footage of Sarah describing this two years ago. So I thought I would just play you the clip. Oh, my God. And you can decide, A, how bad you want to tell me the editing is. B, if you want to add anything to your description. Oh, I was in my 20s then. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me send you this thing. Can you see it? Uh, on a little Skype machine. Yes. Three, two, one. So, tell me about what you uh, what you know about Y two K. The fear of it was that like all of the computers and like automated things and electronic things would break, and then all of our systems would fall apart, and then we would just not have a grid anymore. The amazing thing about that is that your understanding now is about as good as like the U.S. Senate's understanding back then. <laughs> like that was. 
1999 was kind of like the beginning of dot-com stuff. Yeah, it's got that weird grading quality. Yes. That the podcast that people put no effort into have, <laughs> whereas we put in minimal effort. Okay, so as you heard, Mike was referencing the fact that they had originally recorded that clip two years prior to releasing the episode that they played the clip inside. So he kind of wanted to showcase how bad their audio was two years prior. Confused? Perfect. What show host doesn't want confusion? <laughs> well, there are three things that I think we can learn from from this clip. Not only the, the meta way they reference their own past audio, but the content at face value, what they were saying. There are three things that we can learn as showrunners ourselves. Number one, the way Mike introduced that clip raises your intrigue to hear it. So often I think we're flat when we explain something in our show. Mike could have just told us every detail. Hey Sarah, I wanted to play this original take because it's really kind of tinny and bad. Remember two years ago we did a Y2K draft of this episode before we're now publishing it today, two years later? Well, it's kind of hilarious how bad our audio was, so let me just splice in what we originally recorded. He could have just said that. He could have just handed us all the answers of what we were about to hear or even skipped the clip entirely and just summarized it. He could have ruined the intrigue for what is ultimately not that intriguing of a moment. But here's what he actually said instead. But so now is the point in the show where ordinarily I would ask you what you know about Y2K so I can myth bust you. But uh -huh. we have tape. We have live <gasps> footage of Sarah describing this two years ago. So I thought I would just play you the clip. Oh, my God. And you can decide, A, how bad you want to tell me the editing is, B, if you want to add anything to your description. Oh, I was in my 20s then. <laughs> he referenced a moment in the show that they usually do one thing, which, by the way, means they have a plan for their episodes, which we should all have. But he said, we usually do this, which raises your anticipation for what's to come. Oh, that means they're doing something atypical. I should start to really pay attention. That's a teaser or what they call an open loop. Rather than simply give away end-to-end -end details, we can give a few items in a sequence of events. I first did this, then did that, and then I saw something I didn't expect. And now we're anticipating what's to come. An open loop is when you start to provide a little bit of content that gets people going because it's a sequence of events, or it raises the stakes somehow, or it's an open-ended question that deserves answers, and now they're anticipating closure. They want the loop to close. So this example from Mike is what I would call a moment loop. A moment loop, because it's an open loop that affects a very small moment. You can have a whole episode loop where you start with intrigue and close that loop by the very end, but moment to moment, it's really helpful to bring people along, to refresh their need to listen. By using open loops, in fact, we turn experiences people might want to hear into things they need to hear, because we as people need closure. Even the fact that I said to start this section, there are three things we can learn. That's a form of an open loop because you want the closure of one, two, then three. You're more likely to get to the end. So that's the first thing we can learn from clip number one today. There are subtle ways, open loops, or in this case, moment loops, tiny little bits of verbiage and turns of phrases and tones of voice and open-ended questions and adjectives, tiny little things we can do that start to raise intrigue before we deliver on that intrigue. And this gets people all the way to the end. We don't rely on the fact that we just think the topic is interesting or we're charming or the guest is smart and famous. We get them to the end proactively. We use open loops. All right, that's the first thing we can learn from this clip. The second of three is the importance of first establishing recurring sections of your episodes and then breaking from them. 
Mike does that here. He and Sarah normally do something specific. Essentially, they spend lots of episodes establishing that first they bring up some assumptions and then myth bust those assumptions. They spend a lot of their showtime episode to episode establishing that that's what they do in this spot. And then they can break from it and it refreshes the experience. It delights the audience. See, there's a paradox in exceeding someone's expectations. The moment you do, you've changed their expectations. And so it's not enough to just have a great format or style that you repeat over and over again unchanged because eventually even the best moments or episode formats or styles grow stale. The whole point of a show is to deepen that relationship, to get people to the end of the episode, to get people to stick around. So the more people do that, the more your show succeeds, the more you're at risk of those awesome fans of yours getting bored. Time hurts all created content. Stagnation is the enemy. And so if you have a plan, if you have a structure, however light, however hidden it is to the listener, you know you have three sections you move through, as one example. If you have a plan in your episode, that gives you a tool you can use to start by being consistent and then play with it, refreshing that experience over and over and over. So that's the second thing that we can learn from clip number one. The first was the power of open loops in even the tiniest of moments of the episode to make a more intriguing, irresistible experience and get people to the end. The second lesson was about how that rundown, that episode structure, having a plan will give you the ability to not only create a consistent style of episode that's all your own and a compelling one to get them to the end, but also a visual tool for you and anyone else you work with to start reinventing the show, to keep it fresh, to delight your audience and deepen relationships over time because you never grow stale. The third and final lesson from clip number one is really, really short. I just want to call it out. It's how they treat their terrible audio. If you know that a guest doesn't sound quite like you, if you know that your own audio is not great, make light of it, because the audience is going to tell. I like that they do that. It seems risky, but I think it's a much better choice than what usually happens on a lot of podcasts. Either A, people over-apologize and thus weaken their stance as credible and trustworthy, or B, is just painfully ignored. You just let your audience deal with it, and you don't acknowledge it. But make no mistake, they can tell. So I like that they actually acknowledge it and laughed at themselves before proceeding to the rest of the episode. Okay, that's what I had to say about clip number one, and I hope that provides that closure to my open loop that I gave you, that there were three things we can learn from clip one. Let's move now to the second clip. In this clip, Sarah explains to Mike her own experience and understanding of that late 1990s panic over the Y2K bug. And also she explains what people in general seem to worry would happen when the world switched over to January 1st, 2000. I was 11 when we reached the year 2000. And I remember understanding that people were concerned about the fact that basically the machines that ran society were programmed using dates that mm -hmm. gave you only three digits. And therefore, when it reached the year 2000, they would all go to 000 or something. Oh, it was two digits. Yeah, two digits. Two digits. Okay. And because of that, everything would break. Yes. And it would be like Jurassic Park, basically. Yes. Yeah. But so the first myth to bust is that the millennium bug was not a bug. Ah. All right. So one of the reasons that you're wrong about is such a gripping show is you get lost in the conversation. 
And that feels so obvious, right? And also feels natural for humans to do. We like participating in great conversations. And if we can't participate, we also like being voyeurs. But there's a reason the worst podcasts usually begin the same way. Our conversations are so great. This should totally be a podcast. This should totally be a podcast. It never works out quite as intended. And that's because what works in person doesn't really work on the mic. It's not the same. Your podcast is inherently a performance. Now, Mike and Sarah get that. They execute on that. Sounding casual yet dynamic is all a learned skill of performative discussion. And in this clip, Mike debunks a myth in a very intriguing way. The millennium bug was not a bug. Wait, what? You start to think? That's another open loop, by the way. By setting up his co-host like that, he sets us up. We're now all thinking that implied question. When he says the Y2K bug wasn't a bug at all, our brains go, so, so what was it? We crave closure. That's a performative element. He might not have said it like that. Why be so dramatic like that if you're having coffee with a friend and chatting about the Y2K incident? You're never going to say, here's the thing, though. The Y2K bug wasn't a bug at all. Your friend is going to look around and be like, uh, duh, so what are, you, what are you doing right now? So the problem with an actual conversation pasted unchanged from offline to a podcast is that the context has changed. If the context changes, the content must change. You aren't actually sitting with somebody else, especially your listeners, having a chat. And that's the key. You could be face-to-face with a co-host or a guest, but you're not face-to-face with your listeners. You aren't actually sitting with them. So the subtleties and the environments, and the energy, and the emotions which surround a conversation face-to-face have now changed. And that means what is said and how you say it must change too. I think of it like this. If you want to go outside and face the weather and still be comfortable, you have to first gauge that environment. Going outside to try and be comfortable in the winter in Boston is very different than trying to do the same thing during the summer in Orlando which is also very different than trying to go outside and be comfortable in the spring in San Diego. To adapt to different environments, we as people already and very naturally add and subtract and change our clothing that surrounds our bodies. And that is what the subtler performative elements of a podcast are for the host. It's like the clothing that surrounds the body of your ideas, of your content, of what is said. The clothing is like what you wrap it in to send it out into that environment of a podcast. So let's go back to Mike and Sarah. They could discuss the Y2K incident in person over coffee when, when there's no longer a pandemic. Please and thank you. That would be spring in San Diego. When we talk to somebody face-to-face, especially people we know already, you don't even notice the environment. You don't try to consciously change how you talk. You just sit with them and talk. You walk into that coffee shop and you can just be, ah, spring in San Diego. You don't even notice the weather. Ah, face-to-face conversations with friends. Magical. But Mike and Sarah are not discussing the Y2K incident in person over coffee. It's not, for them, spring in San Diego. It's winter in Boston. They and we as podcasters need to deal with all kinds of unpredictable and ever-changing and harsh weather elements that we can consciously notice just like in winter and therefore must consciously adapt to just like in winter. When our thoughts and voices step out into a podcast, it's like stepping out into winter in Boston. We're instantly blasted by the winds of distraction. 
blowing our listeners' attention every which way, all these things they can choose from, not to mention the fact that they're not staring at a screen when they're hearing us. We're even more exposed as podcasters than people who create videos or text or imagery. So their attention is blown by those gusts of wind out in the winter that is the podcast experience. So what do we do? We have to prepare for that. We wrap ourselves as hosts in a thick performance coat to adapt. Maybe even with an extra soft lining inside of our coat of charm and soothing tones to our voices. Mm -hmm. I'll never do that again, I promise you that. Let's get back to my analogy. The visibility also changes as listeners can't see us talking. It's like there's a storm raging and all this snow pelting them in the faces. And so what do we have to do because they can't see us as podcasters face-to-face? Well, we have to call out to them like we would in a storm trying to call out to and navigate our friends forward. Over here, hey, over here, we're going to go this way. We call those things signposts, which is when we overtly say, this is important, don't miss it. We tease little things to come, we imply certain details that matter, or we reflect backwards on a moment we just heard together so they don't miss it. Hey, did, did you catch what he said there? He said that you reflect back on moments that already happened. It's like you're being a little bit redundant, but you have to be. Because the wind is causing their attention to flit all over the place and they're blasted in the face by the harsh reality that they can't see us. So we have to call to them and signpost to them. As people, when the environment changes, when the weather shifts, we adapt, we change, we shift. As performers, as podcasters, we need to embrace a similar idea. The environment has changed. It's not an offline in-person chat. We aren't sitting face-to-face talking to our listeners, so we need to adapt accordingly. That is the power of a performance on the mic. That is the difference between a conversation that's great among friends and actually making a show. Even if, like with Mike and Sarah, the show sounds like a great conversation. Okay, let's now end with our third and final clip from this episode with Mike and Sarah. In this clip... Our co-hosts have finished going over their first takeaway among several that they try to end every episode with. The first takeaway in the Y2K episode is creating a really big deal about something like Y2K may have been worth it in this case just to get people to deal with the compliance and maintenance issues that needed to be dealt with so Y2K could be a smooth transition. So one way to understand Y2K is that the reaction was overblown because look, nothing really happened. But maybe the reason nothing really happened is because so many people sounded the alarm, because there was a heightened sense of stress and and fear about what could have gone wrong. So we made sure nothing did. So that's the show premise coming through. You're wrong about it. Maybe the reaction to Y2K just seems overblown because everybody did such a good job of actually moving swiftly to solve problems. And maybe they did so precisely because people made a big deal of it. In the show, Sarah draws a parallel to the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm sure you can readily assume what could have gone differently with this pandemic. If people genuinely thought there would be something this bad, maybe it wouldn't be. And then Mike brings in a final twist of understanding, and it's that final twist we're going to listen to. Let's go to the clip. And so this brings us to our final twist. Hmm. This is basically the answer to the question why did only four countries fuck with Y2K? Like, why these four countries? So when I tell you the countries again, tell me if anything stands out to you as 
being in common. Okay. America, the UK, Canada, and Australia. They're English-speaking countries. Yes. And I presume that that might have an effect on how we are writing dates. Mm. Oh, close. Okay. But All right. They also have English legal systems. Oh. So one of the things that's common across all of those countries is that they're really big into legal liability and using lawsuits to fix social problems. So one of the major memory hold aspects of Y2K was how fucking terrified corporate America was of getting sued. (laughs) So there were articles coming out in 1999. I found a really interesting projection that said... If Y2K ends up being a problem, corporate America is going to spend $1 trillion and one decade in litigation over Y2K claim. Okay, two things here. Let's start at the beginning of the clip first. He signposts very early on. That idea I told you about, you know, when someone can't see you, you have to kind of prompt what specifically they're paying attention to. It's like if you're about to play a clip of somebody telling a story from their office And you tee it up by saying, that's what so-and-so believed until one day a man walked into his office. And then you play the clip of somebody walking into his office. As a host, I'm signposting. I'm pointing you toward this thing that says, listen very intently to when someone walks into his office in this upcoming clip. That's the key detail. I'm making it completely obvious. I'm putting down a bright sign. Signposting. So Mike does that early on in this clip, too. He says, all right, when I tell you the countries again, tell me what they have in common. By telling Sarah that, he's telling us the same thing. He's saying, I'm going to list the countries, but please pay attention not just to what they are, but think about what they have in common. And by doing so, he enhances the experience. He involves us as the listener, even though in this construct of a show, he's directly talking to Sarah. Again, every episode, somebody plays the role of the audience. And in this case, that's Sarah. So that's one thing to call out from this clip, the ability to signpost to make sure we're immersing our audience in key details and pointing it out. Great hosts aren't the star, even if the show is about them or even if they're actual celebrities. Great hosts are not the star. Great hosts are a guide. They make sure that we're with them every step of the way, and that means sometimes making obvious what we should not miss. Okay, second thing to take away from this final clip today. What this piece of the episode does to support the overall premise of the show is really important. The clip begins to provide insights following a brief exploration of the topic of Y2K. And these insights can be applied to your and my experience of the modern world. They're not just applicable to the historical event, even though the show really only focuses on history. The episode isn't just about Y2K, it's about The premise. And the premise isn't just about how you're wrong about stuff. The premise is about how it's so easy to be wrong about stuff because of how we make sense of stuff. So let's make sure we're really trying to think critically and go beyond our assumptions and our biases so we can get closer to the truth. Well, how are you going to get closer to the truth? This insight section really helps. So it's a logical flow that Mike and Sarah start their episodes by introducing the topic, reminding you what it is, giving their stance on what they assumed it was and what most people did. Then they myth bust that stuff, myth bust, myth bust, get context, get context. And they end by saying, where does that leave us? What are the insights? That is a logical flow taking us from where we need to start our understanding to where we need to finish it. That's how the premise manifests in an episode. It's like a logical, lawyerly case for the premise. In the case of this specific episode, 
How does this affect our lives outside of the show and outside and away from Y2K? Well, the point they're trying to make that we can bring with us back to our day-to-day lives is that when we actually work hard to prepare for things, the aftermath looks kind of boring. And we shouldn't understand it as an overreaction because, look, nothing happened. We should be thankful that we were so prepared that nothing did. Now Mike then brings us into this final twist, which is a great little piece of intrigue. It's food for thought. He asks, why did some countries spend billions to prepare for Y2K? The U.S., for example, had a Y2K czar. Why did some countries overprepare, and yet others were quiet and cheap about it? It's about the companies not wanting to get sued in lawsuit-happy countries like America and England and Australia. The listener probably didn't expect Mike and Sarah to teach them about the justice system from this episode, but it's this little nugget of unexpected wisdom they can take with them back into their daily lives and even pass on to others. And when they're talking about that subject, if they say, hey, I learned this thing today, or, you know, I noticed mom or dad or sister or friend that you're talking about X, Y, or Z, well, here's something I know or learned. People can say, where did you learn that? And that's how word of mouth happens. Oh yeah, I learned about this on You're Wrong About, which is a great show. You should totally check it out. And honestly, who doesn't like to tell others what they're wrong about? Okay, so I hope now you have a better understanding of what makes this show work. We know what it is, the facts of the show. We know what it feels like through the studio pitch. And we also have dissected it so we can see how they're so creative a few little pieces of their show at a time. But now it's time for a section that we call Wrinkles. So why wrinkles? Well, because of our underpinning belief that creativity is about small choices all strung together, innovation, improving things. It's just about adding little wrinkles onto the status quo, small and refreshing changes to what's growing stale. So I'd like to propose two small little wrinkles that we can implement on the typical podcasts we make. Two small things we can try. First, try an upside down premise. Start with an interesting question or try to prove something wrong and make that your premise. Don't stay snarky about it. I mean, the worst example would be people doing website teardowns where they just make fun of and have issues with the way people design their websites. Sure, there might be some education in that, but that premise isn't fully realized when all you do is snark and tear down. It's only realized when you use it to understand things from a different angle and then build back up more original, clear, and critical thinking from there. That's the power of an upside-down or subversive premise. Most shows fall flat because there are no stakes. Here's a successful person talking about how they're so successful. This is a smart person teaching you a topic in a smart way. This is a recap show about pop culture in which we recap the thing that happened in pop culture. But when you flip something on its head, you can ask more interesting questions than what happened or why are they successful. You can ask things like, is there anything wrong with this? What might we not see? Where are assumptions being accepted as truth? And what if we saw things as one way, but just for a moment, even if they run counter to our beliefs, we tried to understand them from a different way? That could be your show's entire premise, this upside-down subversive idea, or we could simply use this notion to ask better questions of our guests or tell better stories when we script an interview. If we force ourselves to examine things by flipping them over and turning them on their head and asking the counter question, not to attack and snark, but to really try and understand it from all angles, our content will be richer. That's one little thing we can try, 
always take the counter stances, the subversive questions, and wonder, what are we wrong about? The second little wrinkle that we can use to refresh our shows is more about our understanding of what actually grows the show. As makers and marketers, I think we often assume that the way to grow a show is to go out into the world and talk about our show. We have to mention that we have the show. We have to link to it everywhere. We create articles and social media posts from the content inside our episodes and on and on and on. The thing is, shows are primarily driven by word of mouth. I mean, think about how you discover most of your shows and probably many of your favorites. And word of mouth doesn't really happen. In other words, people don't really share stuff because we ask them to share it. In fact, word of mouth isn't really other people talking about us so much as it is them using the ideas we've given them. Think of a software product. Some software products have a page where it's like, refer a friend, receive a discount. But other software products, just by you using them, you start to bump up into other people, the way you share things, the way you change things, the way you build things. And that causes them to say, hey, I see you're sending it to me on this platform. Maybe I should check it out. Or when it comes to a podcast, wow, that's really interesting. Where did you learn that? And you'll say, oh, right. I learned it from this show. People aren't after the container. People don't talk about containers. They're after and they talk about the stuff inside the ideas, the stories, the way you make them feel. And the more they use those ideas and share those stories and change their behavior and see the world a certain way, the more they'll remember us and return to us and the more likely they'll bring others with them. So let's commit right now to stop asking people to talk about our shows and start creating shows worth talking about. So often, it's not the show itself that they'll talk about. It's the stuff inside. The premise the episode format, the talent, and how it all comes together to make someone's favorite show. Thanks for listening. Big thank you again to our sponsor, Casted. For more on their platform for marketers who make shows, visit casted.us. Also, two more thank yous specific to this episode. Number one, thank you, thank you, thank you to Cardboard Rocketship for our new theme song. The ability as a podcaster to say original music by, oh my gosh, what could be better? Nothing. And thanks to producer Chelsea Urson for helping with this episode. Be sure to listen to Chelsea's great podcast if you like music and storytelling. Her great show is Dear Young Rocker. You can find it wherever you listen. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe this work we do is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of the show. See ya. This week's recommended read from the Marketing Showrunners blog. It's called Radically Improve Your Show and Episode Content, The Six Types of Open Loops to Hold Attention. So as we talked about in this episode briefly, there are these techniques that are hidden everywhere in a show called open loops, and there are actually six different types. In this post, I look at Game of Thrones and several other examples and how they're so brilliant at deploying this technique, open loops. And this technique is not about budget. It's not even about how long you've been doing this thing called showrunning. It's about knowing these things exist, these six types of open loops, because if you do, you'll start to see them everywhere, and then you can proactively deploy them. Whether you do it by scripting them into your episodes, you do it in the moment as a host, a storyteller, an interviewer, or you do it in post. 
The six types of open loops will hold attention and honor the golden rule of podcasters. Get them to the end. You can get a link right in your show notes at the very bottom or search the blog at marketingshowrunners.com.